Well, good morning. Um, so I've been in a series the last uh, probably five or six times I've taught uh, that I've entitled Foundational Truths That Transform. And we've talked about various different things. It's always important that we make sure we have a solid foundation, especially when it seems like um, things are shaking around us, whether in our personal lives or even in the society at wide, which they certainly are. And... Um, so I'm going to take a look at this passage and continue in this series. I'm probably going to take at least two weeks, maybe three on this. So I'll teach today and we'll come back to it in a couple of weeks, perhaps finish it up. There's so much here. If there's any passage in the last three years that I've meditated on uh, more than any other, it's this one. Probably even more than Romans 8. Okay, and I, you guys know how much I love Romans 8. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11 is so pivotal and so key in my mind about some things I want to talk about today and then the next time and maybe next couple of times we, uh, that I, I'm preaching. And so today where I want to go with this is I uh, want to talk to you about how God's grace, God's high octane, massive, glorious grace, and our serious, strenuous effort connect. Okay? God's grace and our effort. Grace and hard work. These two things are not at odds. They are not antithetical to each other. They are not enemies in the slightest. Now to be sure, the, the New Testament warns often against the kinds of works that we think merit our salvation or earn God's favor or grace or make us acceptable to God. If we do enough of this, then God will finally accept us. The New Testament says that's that's very dangerous to go down that path. We want to avoid that like the plague. Our acceptance with God is through faith in Jesus Christ alone and what he has done, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and our faith in him is what gives us acceptance, full acceptance and favor with God. It's on the basis of Christ alone. So to do works of the law, to obey God's commands as a way to earn wages, as Romans 4 puts it, is to res will result in condemnation, right? It will only put us in more debt with God and will result in our condemnation. Now, that's nearly the, the entire message of the book of Galatians and at least a couple chapters in Romans. So outward obedience that earns, God, earns merit points with God is bad, okay? Are we on the same page with that? Um, striving to earn God's love and grace is bad. But striving by the grace of God to do what pleases him is good. Striving by his grace to do what pleases him is good. In other words, there is a kind of striving that is itself a grace. And I think Paul communicates this. Of, of any of the New Testament authors, Human authors, that is, okay, God's the author. But of any of the human authors, Paul is the one who expounds and exalts in God's grace more than any other. And yet even Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I strive. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. So he was not opposed to striving in a certain kind of way, and neither should we. So that's what I want to address tonight. I hope to not only show you that that's what this passage actually says, 
that this passage actually makes that connection. God's grace and our serious, strenuous effort. I not only hope to show you that, but I also want you to see that this is extremely important. Peter says in this passage, we'll probably get to it next time, that our effort to grow in godly character keeps us from being ineffective and unfruitful in the Christian life. Okay? So we want to bear fruit for God's glory, right? Okay? We want to be effective for God, right? We want to live a life that's effective and showing what Christ, who Christ is and what he has done for us. We want to do that. Well, our effort, right, connected with God's grace is what keeps us from being ineffective and unfruitful. We need to see how these two things intersect. Peter also says that your assurance of salvation to be fully assured of salvation depends largely on your grace-based effort to grow in Christ-likeness. Brian prayed earlier that we would grow in Christ-likeness and that's exactly what we're talking about. Your grace-based effort to grow in Christ-likeness will give you a greater sense of assurance. I think this passage clearly touches on that as well, which again, we'll probably get to in a couple of weeks. Um, now, of course, we're talking about sanctification here, okay? The process of becoming more and more like Jesus, which is a lifelong path that we're on. I think there's a, a really important distinction we always have to keep in mind. The moment you believe in Jesus, okay, the moment you are converted, you believe in Christ, you become a child of God, your sins are taken away. Psalm 103 says, removed as far as the east is from the west, which is a long ways, okay? In other words, they're gone. They've been removed. You are forgiven. You are adopted. You are justified in a moment, okay? The moment you believe. However, then you are put on the path of sanctification, In other words, all those other things happen in a moment. Sanctification, this gradual growth in Christ-likeness, takes a lifetime. I'm convinced that this is a neglected truth, and because it is, many Christians live far below their privileges in terms of assurance of salvation, that I belong to God. And what Reed's been preaching on in Revelation the last several times he's taught, right? This great hope that we have. For some people, it just, their eyes glaze over because there's no sense that it's really theirs because of this lack of assurance of salvation. So if that's you, if you lack that, or if you would say, hopefully like all of us would, I want more of that, I want a greater assurance of salvation, then you need to see how God's grace and your serious moral effort converge. So here's what I want to do. I want to answer three questions this morning from this text. The first is, what is it that God gives us by grace? Okay, what is it that God gives us? God is gracious, and this passage says he gives us things, gifts, okay? Second, what is God's ultimate aim in giving us these gifts? And then third, what must we do? Okay, there's something we're to do. So first, what does God give? Verses three and four. If you have your Bibles or the bulletin, 
Here's what it says. His divine power has granted to us. That's the language of giving. He has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us, there's that word again, his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So you hear the language of gift, God giving. God is a giving and gracious God. First it says his divine power has granted or given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now notice it's in the past tense. Okay, So if you are a Christian, God has already given you these things. He's already given you everything you need for life and godliness. Now, this is not saying, of course, but we need to think about this and just reckon with this. This is not saying God has given us all things that pertain to our dreams and our goals and our aspirations, right? To have our best life now. That's not what this is saying. Sometimes people import that into here. They just assume that their dreams, their aspirations, well, that's what God wants for them. Well, maybe, maybe not. This is saying God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, if Peter had only said God has granted us all things that pertain to life, we probably would think only of eternal life. We would think, well, of course, okay, God has given us everything we need to go to heaven someday. And that's a true statement. God has provided everything we need to go to heaven someday when we die or to be with Christ forever when he comes again. He's provided it perfectly through Jesus, no doubt. But that's not what this passage says. It says Peter is concerned more with life here and now which is why he says God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what is godliness when coupled with this life? I think it means a God-honoring life. A God-word life. John Piper, I think I still have it in my office somewhere, has a devotional, 365 devotionals, called a God-word life. So it's Godliness speaks of a Godward life, a reverent life, a God-honoring, God-reverent or reverent life. There's a Latin phrase that I think gets at the heart of this. It's the phrase coram Deo. Anyone ever heard of that phrase before? Coram Deo. It means to live before the face of God. Deo is the word for God. Coram, the face of God. To live before the face of God. Life and godliness is living in a God-honoring way before his face for his approval and his glory. And of course, as Christians, with new hearts, there's something in us that wants to do that. And God has granted to us all things that pertain to that kind of life. It's the kind of life that leads to heaven and eternal life with God. God. And what has Peter said here? God has given us all things, not some things, but all things for this God-honoring life. 
Of course, you and I will face trials. We experience the harsh realities of living in a fallen world. No doubt, we battle with sin. We do battle with sin. But by faith in Christ and the power of the indwelling spirit, you have everything you need for the battle to live this God-honoring life. God has graciously given it to you. Romans 8.32, right? Every other sermon, at least, I bring out Romans 8.32, right? Two years ago, you had probably no intention of memorizing this verse, but some of you probably haven't memorized just from hearing it so often here. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Right? God didn't withhold Jesus from us. How will he not also with Christ, not apart from Christ, but with Christ, give us everything we need in this life? He will. He will withhold nothing that is good from us. He will give us all things that we need with Christ and in Christ. Think of how generous and open-handed your Father in heaven is to you. He loves you and has given you all things that you need for life and godliness. But this passage goes on to say that there's other things that God has given us. It says that God has also granted to us what verse 4 says, his precious and very great promises. God has given us not only all things pertaining to life and godliness, but also his precious and very great promises. I love the, uh, we sing it here, from time to time, the, the, the old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God. And the second verse of that song says, Standing on the promises I cannot fail. Excuse me, Standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. God has given us not only all things pertaining to life and godliness, but his massive and precious and very great promises, all of them to us. The promises of God are like this big treasure trove found in the scriptures, and we ought to be like treasure hunters. One movie that we kind of enjoy watching as a family is National Treasure, those two movies. You know, the, the guy who's the treasure hunter, he's always, you know, he's always looking for that next hidden treasure somewhere. We ought to be, now there's not riddles in the Bible, I don't mean, there's not a perfect correlation there, okay? But, but we ought to be like treasure hunters with our noses in the scriptures looking for promises that we can then build our lives upon. Meditating on them like the psalmist in Psalm 119 who says, I get up before the watches of the night so that I can meditate on your promise. God has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Now, you might think, which ones? There's an awful lot in there. Well, that's true. What God has not granted to us is just promises that we think up in our own minds. And because usually what that relates to is we think God owes us something. Which is not true. But 
If you go to the scriptures, if you go looking in the Bible, you can claim every single promise there. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all of the promises of God find their yes or their fulfillment in Christ. Every single one of them. We sang earlier about God releasing us from fear. Do you need courage to face some serious trial you're walking through? If you don't now, you will someday. And when you do, whether today or in a year, a year from now, you may claim, if you are in Christ, you may claim Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you need comfort and peace because the world seems to be spinning out of control, which it does seem to be spinning out of control? Then you may claim the promise of Philippians 4, 4 and 5. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in all things, through prayer and petition, make your requests known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God has given all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given us all of his precious and very great promises, which leads to the next question, to what end? What's the purpose? What's God's aim in these gifts that he gives to us through Christ? Verse 4, the second part tells us, so that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The words, so that, at the beginning of that phrase, tell us that this is God's purpose. This is purpose. That's, that's the language of purpose. If I say to my kids, I have $20 on the counter so that you might, may buy a pizza tonight when your mom and I are out. The $20, the purpose of the $20 is for pizza, right? Not for Silas to buy a video game or anything else. The purpose is for the pizza. God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. God has given us his precious and very great promises so that we may partake of the divine nature and escape from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now, what does that mean to partake of the divine nature? Well, it does not mean that we are immersed into God and somehow become divine in any way, that we don't become little gods as some people teach. We don't become divine in any way. But there is a real and true participation in God's nature that I think we have to understand. The word partakers means one who shares in or a partner or a companion in something. In this case, the divine nature. So this communicates not just a theological idea, but something that we are to experience. You don't genuinely share in anything that you neither understand nor experience. Is that true? Right? If you're a companion in life with your spouse, hopefully there, there's got to be experience for that to be a true statement. If you're sharing life with your wife or your husband or your friends in Christ, there's experience there. 
We are, God gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness and all of his promises so that we may share in his divine nature. To get at what this kind of sharing in God's nature means, I think Hebrews 12.10 helps us understand. Hebrews 12.10 says, God disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So that we may share his holiness. So that we may partner in or share in or partake in or participate in the very holiness of God. God shares his holiness with us. And isn't that what's in view here? It says we're to be partakers of the divine nature and then the next phrase says having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We live in a fallen and corrupt world. There's sinful desire that we are all born with. And when we participate in the divine nature, we are escaping from that. We're sharing in God's holiness. To partake in the divine nature, in God's very nature, I think is to experience the sanctifying work of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling within. To experience his sanctifying work within us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And that idea of the new has come is this ongoing, the new is coming. It's come and it's coming. We are new creatures and we are becoming new. Day by day, the Spirit renews us day by day. It is Jesus Christ and his life formed in our hearts. There's an old book written in, I think, 1678 or something like that uh, by, by a Scottish man. He was actually a young man when he died. I think he was like 24 or 5 when he died. The book uh, outlived him, of course, because people are still reading it today and being impacted, and, and it has an outsized influence as well. The book was written by a man named Henry Scougal. The book is entitled The Life of God and the Soul of Man. It's a small book. If you can find it, I'd grab it and devour it. Here's what Henry Scougal said about true religion. He said, true religion is a union of the soul with God, a real participation in the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul, or as Paul puts it, Christ formed within us. So God gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He gives us all of his precious and very great promises so that we may partake of his very nature. What must we do? Verse five, just the first phrase. For this very reason. Now listen to this. You can dig into the original Greek. It says the same thing. There's no hidden message here. Make every effort. Because of all that God has given you, because of his purpose to make you more like Christ, to cause you, to to enable you to participate and partake of his divine nature, make every effort. It's so obvious that the command of verse 5, and it is a command, does flow from what we've covered so far, right? 
His divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Amen? He has given us his precious and very great promises so that you may share in his holiness. Therefore, or for this very reason, make every effort to become more like Christ. That's the connection. Grace and effort, grace and work, rightly understood, not only are they not enemies, they're actually friends. They walk hand in hand in the Christian life together from beginning to end. Charles Spurgeon was once asked by somebody, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? And you know what his answer was? It's fantastic. I mean, only Spurgeon could say this. Like, and he probably came up with it right off the top of his head. He said, I didn't know I needed to reconcile friends. And it's like that with grace and effort. There's no need to reconcile these things. They're friends. God's mighty grace, God's high-octane grace comes to us, and because of that, we put forth great effort. Now, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like God, it's not like our work and God's work equal 100%. Like God does 90 percent and we do 10 or God does 95 and we do 5 or God does 99 and we do 1 percent. It's not like that. Here's what it's like. God does 100 percent of his work and we do 100 percent of ours. And here's the key. And our work is dependent upon his. He does 100 percent of his work. We do 100 percent of ours and our work is totally dependent, totally conditioned upon his. So, how do we grow and become more like Christ? How does, how do, what does that look like? It's not this. Now, I've heard this. I've probably said this before. And if you've said this, and if you said it recently, it's okay, and don't get mad at me, but it's not let go and let God. I'm just going to let go and let God. There's this great Babylon Bee article. You guys know what Babylon Bee is? Anyone know what that is? Satire, Christian satire. Well, not just Christian, but satire. And it's of this mountain climber, and he's, he's scaling the face of this wall, and he gets to this point, he can't get any further, and he says, I remember my pastor said last week in a sermon, let go and let God. <laughs> and so what does he do? He lets go and lets God, and he falls and dies. <laughs> okay, it's not let go and let God. That's not what the Christian life, that's not how we grow in Christ-likeness. It's found nowhere in the Bible. Nor is it God does his part and now the rest is all up to me. But rather, here's how it works. God has so powerfully worked in you and is giving you all that you need, now you yourself must make every effort. The word, um, so I'm, I'm teaching out of the ES, or I'm using the ESV Bible. Um, make every effort. The word make. Maybe if, you're, if you have the New American Standard, it might say, um, uh, what does it say? Providing all diligence or something like that. The word in the ESV that's make means to bring in beside. Okay? 
The idea is to bring in your effort, your diligence alongside the mighty promises of God and his mighty power so that you may grow. Bring your effort alongside what God has already done and what God is doing in you so that you may grow and be more like Christ. Now think of the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels. I think this helps us understand this, kind of a parallel here. Jesus would give sight. He would touch a blind man's eyes. He made mud, put him on the guy's eyes, told him to go wash. The guy came back. Jesus said, what do you see? He says, I see men, but they look like trees. He said, okay, go back and wash again. Came back seeing. Jesus touched his eyes, gave him sight. It was the man who saw, right? It was, his, it was him with his eyes that saw. Jesus would open deaf ears, and it was the deaf people who were before deaf that could now hear with their ears. Jesus would strengthen legs that had never worked, a paralyzed man, and say, get up and walk. And it was the paralyzed man who got up and walked and jumped and danced for joy. Jesus came to the the home of the mom and dad with their little daughter who was dead and said to her, he went over to her and said, little girl, I say arise. And it was the little girl who got up and started talking. That's how sanctification is as well. Except, I would suggest, it's a miracle of a greater magnitude because we're talking about the risen Lord Jesus Christ being formed in our hearts. That's a miracle. So God does the miracle of giving us all that we need, giving us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He gives all of his mighty and precious promises. He works in us that which is pleasing to him. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Philippians 2. And he does this so that we may be partakers of the divine nature. And so what do we do? We bring our effort, our real effort, alongside what he does and act or perform what he produces. I love the language John Piper puts to this. It's very, I find it very helpful. I think he got it from Jonathan Edwards, but anyways, I'm just going to read John Piper, okay? Um, he said, God works the miracle of sanctification and you act the miracle. God produces it or works it, you act it. God, he produces it, you perform it. If you don't use your will to act the miracle, there's no miracle. God's sovereign enablement of holiness does not contradict our act of duty, it creates it. God, again, gives all things for life and godliness. He performs that. He makes us new people. He gives us all things that we need for this God-honoring life. And you are to make every effort to produce what he has given, what he has performed to live out what he's given in Christ. There's a couple other passages I just want to look at briefly that I think help make this connection as well. God's gracious work and our effort. The first is in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Here's what Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that sounds like effort, right? 
Put forth effort. Work out your own salvation. It's your salvation. God has given it to you. Work it out with fear and trembling. That sounds serious. That sounds like effort. You hear the word work, fear and trembling. Okay, take that seriously. That's something you're to do. And then it says this, because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in you, both to will. What does that mean? Giving us the willingness, the willpower, and the the work, and the effort, or the strength to do what pleases him. So, work out what he works in. That's what we're to do. You work out what he works in. He works in, you work it out. Does that make sense? Okay. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God with me. Some translations say grace of God in me. So Paul says it's all grace. I am what I am by the grace of God. But then he says, and his grace was not in vain toward me. Rather, I worked hard. In fact, he says harder than them all. I think in the context he's saying harder than all the other apostles. Okay, Peter, James, John, I worked harder than all of them. Yet it wasn't I, but the grace of God with me. I think Paul could say, if, right, if, if the grace of God doesn't lead someone to effort and work to grow in Christ-likeness, then I think the grace of God would be in vain. Grace does not lead to laziness. One more. One more passage. The Saturday morning men's group, um, we're going through John 15. And it's just such an easy connection to make with this. John 15 is all about, Jesus begins John 15, I am the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. You're the branches. You guys know that passage, okay? Jesus the vine, we're the branches. Branches are connected to vine, right? The vine. Jesus gives us all that we need. He gives us the life, the nourishment. He gives us the fruit, the the, the capacity to bear fruit. He gives us all that we need. But Jesus doesn't just say, so let go and let God. No, he says, abide in me. And if you obey my commands, you will abide in me. Actually, he says, if you obey my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. So he doesn't just say, so sit back, just relax, it's all going to happen. No, no, no. He's the vine. We're the branch. By faith, we trust we're getting all that we need from him. All that he wants to give us, he's going to give us. And so what do we do? We act. We, we perform what he provides. God does 100% of his work. We do 100% of ours. And our work is totally dependent upon his. So by faith in God's work, in his mighty promises, in his gift of all things that you need for life and godliness, by faith in that, you and I are to make every effort to grow in Christ.
to be done settling for a media, and listen, I'm, I'm talking about growing in Christ-likeness, okay? I'm not talking about grandiose, becoming f- famous or anything like that, but we need to be done settling for mediocre levels of Christ-likeness. We want to strive to be like our master. We want to be like him in every way. So don't say it's too hard to change and grow. Don't say that. That's why you're to make every effort. That's why you're to make every effort. I mean, every good parent who's had a child that's played an instrument or done sports or whatever, every parent who wants their child to do the best they can has said, hey, listen, you have to work hard. We understand that. We get it. Well, it is hard to change and grow. That's why we're to make every effort. Have you ever noticed that good habits take effort to gain and maintain? Bad habits take no effort at all. At all. I mean, I can slip into bad habits like by this afternoon. But it takes a while to gain, to gain and maintain good habits. And we're not just talking about habits. We're talking about growing in godliness, right? But you get the point. Don't say old habits die hard. Yep, they sure do. And that's why God has given you all things pertaining to life and godliness, including new habits. So make every effort to develop those new habits of Christ-likeness. Don't just let go and let God, right? Don't, don't say, I'm just going to let go and let God. Here's what Jesus is saying to us today. I've healed your legs. I've opened your ears. I've opened your eyes. Now stop sitting around and get up and walk in my strength. Amen? He says, I've healed your legs. I've given you new legs. Now get up and walk and walk in my strength. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning and this time to be together and worship.